we are in middle of a phenomenal uh, passage known as a sugya in the Gemara that's speaking about unusual or extraordinary prayers. We began with the prayer of Chana, extraordinary in the context, not of the one who was doing the praying, was asking for something beyond the laws of nature. Well, that, that is, yeah, all relative. That is an extraordinary prayer, but we find a lot more of those. Extraordinary in the context is that the one doing the praying, whether it was Chana, we spoke about Eliyahu, we're middle now of Moshe Rabbeinu, that they were Hitiach Dvarim Klapi Maila. The word Hitiach in Aramaic literally means they flung or they threw their words towards the heaven. It connotes some sort of, so to say, disrespectful way of speech, not disrespectful wrong, obviously they're tzaddikim, but something that they spoke very harshly towards God, not only harshly as a demand, but they brought up, they verbalized certain concepts that from our perspective really makes us appear to be in the right, and so to say God in the opposite of that. And we got to be cautious when we speak to God that way, um, just to begin with, with the general framing that tzaddikim know when is, when is one allowed and when is one not allowed to talk that way towards Hashem. The Rebbe taught us that in our generation, when it comes to praying for the redemption, the way to daven for it is hetiach devarim. In other words, we have to demand Mashiach, which is a big, which is a big thing. The Rebbe knows exactly what, how things really are, and we are thank God, uh, traveling on the shoulders of the Rebbe. But uh, appreciate how this is unusual. Usual is we ask, we ask humbly, and we accept if God says no, etc. That's the normal Jewish approach. But here we're speaking about a very firm, a very um, uncompromising, so to say, struggle in prayer, challenging God in prayer. And in this context, the Gemara explained that when Moshe Rabbeinu was admonishing the Jewish people, as we know that from the Shchodesh Shvat, which is 37 days, a bit more than a month before his passing, he gathered all the Jewish people, and he basically articulated the entire fifth book of the Chumash, Chumash Devarim. And he began by speaking about locations. He never explicitly said, what he means by mentioning those places, but we all understood. He was continuously mentioning places in which we sinned there. And he was really reprimanding us. We should be humble, and we should remember what we did here, what we did there. In other words, it's healthy for a person to remember that none of us are beyond sin. It keeps us, number one, humble, and it inspires us to put boundaries and not to say, well, I know that God said you can't do A, but God never spoke about B. So as long as I don't touch A, I'm good to go. Well, theoretically, maybe. But in actuality, there's a concept of, no, no, no. Since I know that I am susceptible to A, I might as well already not even do, do B, not even go close, because this might lead to that. And all of that is the simple shot of the words of Moshe. However, the Gemara said that when he mentioned the place of the Zahav, an abundance of gold, Moshe Rabbeinu was really arguing, so to say, against God. 
You, God Almighty, are upset that we fell doing the sin of the golden calf. Well, God, it's not, it's not our fault. He says, it's your fault, God. You gave us so much gold. You gave us so much abundance. And, and that's the nature of a human being before Mashiach that, you know, it's God forbid never to have less than what we need. God forbid. But when a person has too much more than what they need, before Mashiach, Golos, and Golos, it makes people confused. It makes people arrogant. It makes people uh, lose perspective. It gives people too much free time. Too much free time is a curse. And, 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 and we are in the middle of learning these examples. Like the last example we learned is that if there's a king, a king, and he raises a prince, and he spoils the prince, and he gives him gold and silver, and he anoints him, uh, and he has nothing else what to do with this time, and the king brings him in, in a bad neighborhood where people are misbehaving, and he has all the time and he has all the money to misbehave, what do you expect of him? You know, if, if he makes a bad choice, this is, what, this is the argument of Moshe Rabbeinu. Is it the prince's fault? It's the king's fault. Wow. And let's continue. And, 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 uh, and we're going to take a step back in a moment and we're going to give a, a deeper Hasidic insight to this whole topic. But let's keep on reading inside again. We are, whoever's learning from the book, we are on page 32A2. Shurituwaitu is the left side of the book. We are still in the left column. The last paragraph in the less in the left column. Ravacha, the son of Rafuna, said in the name of Rapsheshis. Another example. Hainu da Amri Inchi. This explains the following, the following popular saying, popular then in the Gemara, in the Talmudic times. Filling the stomach ranks among the types of evils. Wow. By the way, Rambam, who wrote so much, including many books on healing, the Rambam's general uh, diet approach was that a person should never, never eat to their satiation. No need to say a person should never eat when, to, 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 to the feeling of being stuffed that is mamish samhamavis. That's poison. Even if you're eating the healthiest of foods, the Ramam says not only that is never okay, but even not eating until you're stuffed, eating until you're satisfied. The Ramam is of the opinion that a person should never eat until they're satisfied. Using his words, a person should eat until they feel three quarters satisfied. That's the right way to eat. I mean, the Ramam has many other dietetic tips, but this is from mamish the most important. This, together with never eat if you're not hungry. These are the two big rules of the Rambam. And here we have an opposite, that filling your stomach ranks amongst the types of evils. So on a physical level, it means don't fill your stomach. It's not healthy for you. On a, on a deeper understanding, as we are replying it here in the Gemara, filling one's stomach means that if a person has everything that they need, then they're, then they're susceptible to getting into trouble. As we all know, for this is Golos. Now when Mashiach will come... We will already be on a greater level of maturity. And I'm sure that many people now are already living in the days of Mashiach and they already have that maturity, that they can be blessed with kol tuv sela, they can be blessed with abundance and they can be blessed with wealth and it's not going to trip them up. But you have to have a different perspective of your life and of your purpose and of God's purpose, etc., etc. You have to be in the right zone. But if a person is in, in the wrong zone, then if you feel too full, if you have too much, you have... No worries in the world. 
you don't have to save money for tomorrow's tuition, etc., etc., or a trust fund baby, as we know here in America, that many people, Bar Hashem, they are blessed with real abundance, and they don't have responsibilities nor work, and some of them are underdeveloped, they don't mature properly, and, and worse, etc. And as it says, and he's quoting here a Pasik in Hoysheya, that Bimar Isam, which means upon coming to their pasture, Vayizbo, they became sated, they became sated, they became full. And Savu, once they were sated, Vayodam Libam, their hearts grew haughty. And Al Cain, and because of them growing haughty, Shechechuni, they have forgotten me. And that's God's complaint. I gave you so much. I brought you to the pasture. I fed you. And ironically, that caused you to forget me. Or, so God is, is having that taina on us. Moshe Rabbeinu flipped it. He told God, if we sin, it's your fault. You gave us too much. And obviously, we're not telling God not to give us too much. This is Moshe Rabbeinu's claim. Then, Rav Nachman says, there's another verse. You don't have to go to Hosheya. It's always better to bring a source in the Hamish Yechom not that Nach is not scripture. It is. But there are levels in Kedusha. The highest one is the Torah. And in the Torah it says, Your heart will become haughty. And you will forget God. And haughtiness in, generally is connected to wealth. As we all can experience that when a person, God forbid, has financial needs. They can't pay the bills. It's very humbling. And on the opposite, when a person doesn't only have enough to pay their bills, but when they have a certain amount of excess, since most people don't have that, especially if that person thinks that it was their chachma and their business and their work that brought about that success, and they begin to say that, yadi, God forbid, that it was my power and the strength of my hand, that that's the mindset that leaves people to being haughty. And hori leads people to forget God. And once people forget God, sooner or later, it's mamish, the end of the world. Or, there's another, another verse. Again, we're bringing psukim in the chumish. V'achal, and he will eat. V'sava, and he will be sated. V'dashen, and he will grow fat. Ufana, and he will turn to other gods. Or another verse, where it says, V'yishman, Yeshurun. Yeshurun is one of the names of the Jewish people. Yeshurun means yashar. You can even see Yisrael, most of the letters are of the same root. So Yeshurun is the name of the Jewish people. That God tells Moshe Rabbeinu and Pasha Sazinu that Yeshurun grew fat. But instead of thanking God for growing fat, means of having abundance, Vayivad, we kicked God. We kicked God. So this is Moshe Rabbeinu's complaint that you gave us so much good. It's your fault, God. And At a certain point in history, God accepted that complaint. God told Moshe, you're right. Now, it's not black and white. You're right. That you, I, God says your perspective is correct. There is another perspective, but Moshe Rabbeinu's perspective was acknowledged by God. As it says, and now we are quoting a Pasik from Hosea, where it says that the Kesev Hirbesi law, God is saying, I gave them so much silver and, and gold, Vizahav, and then Osula Baal, and they used it for the idol known as the Baal, whether it was making an idol out of gold or silver or bringing offerings to the idol, that God is saying, I gave, the, I gave them so much good, so much gold that they were tempted, so to say, and they fell at that time in history by, by participating in idol worship. Okay, so I want to take a pause over here. 
And there's a lot there's a lot more coming, God willing, in the subsequent weeks. But I want to share the following challenge and propose the following solution. Here's the challenge. Challenge is, and I'm sure that all of us at one point already struggled with this. And if not, you will struggle with it on your own at your at, at your own time. How does one understand um, the severity of punishments that we have in the Torah? I would say like this: that it, 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 let's speak about we're speaking now with human mind, with human logic, not with divine logic. A person who doesn't yet have such great access to one's godly soul. If there is God forbid, let's say a murderer, God forbid, someone who perpetrated physical harm on a mass level and and today the law and order were to go ahead and to give him a capital punishment it's something yeah i know some people are against capital punishment but it doesn't shock people we we grasp it this person committed such atrocities then he killed others you know mida keneged mida he took life there is even people who are against it but they i'm sure they can relate to the concept that there could be a capital punishment, not, not hefker, that, that a society, a civilized society, should punish the person very severely. But how does it, one explain that for someone, for example, you, you, you break the Shabbos by, I don't know, breaking a branch off a tree. You do something, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing Chilol Shabbos at all, but you know, there's so many activities of Chilol Shabbos, or other, a person eats a little bit on Yom Kippur, a little bit... Or, or other such ritual violations where by Torah, Chilol Shabbos, under certain conditions, you're going to get stoned to death. How do you explain that? Doesn't it appear that, that God is being a, a little bit uh, excessively gevuridic? What would you answer? If someone asks you that question, what would you tell them? Anyone? Okay, I'll take a... Go ahead. Go ahead, Um, I'll just say that what I learned from my Yom Kippur davening, we daven every Yom Kippur service, who's going to die by fire, who by water. So if stoning, which I believe is in there, um, then that's what Hashem... That's just the way it goes. I don't know, I'm very accepting of these things. Okay, so, so again... Very good. I'm happy you said that because I'm, okay, I gave an intro that everyone is troubled by it. I take it back. Not everyone is troubled by it. And, 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 I, and that's just the way it is, a fact. But I would say that many people, I'm not saying that they live their lives struggling, making sense of it. But, you know, everyone at their time begins to think and, and, and we all try. This is a good thing to understand better. And the way we understand better is asking questions and challenging it. I would say that well, my question is, first, not my question, but it's a question that resonates with many people, not with all people, because we have this question. So can anyone here share words that would give some sort of context as to why is it that the fact that you have a Chilol Shabbos, theoretically, you're going to be stoned to death. Isn't, why isn't that excessive? Why isn't that too severe? Shoshana, you wanted to say something before, I think. Yeah, I actually, I, it's funny that you're bringing this up because I had a conversation about this with somebody um, about a very controversial subject um, that, um, whatever, I won't bring up the subject, but in the end, we spoke about the death penalty and they brought up that it didn't actually happen that often. 
So it was more of a warning and more of a conceptual issue than an actual um, an actual killing of the people who sinned. So I wonder if that has anything to do with it as well. I wonder if... Well, okay, let me, 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 if I may, Shoshana, let me word what you're saying just a little bit from a different angle. And that is that people should not confuse God's word as to if you'll do X or Y or Z, then this, that, and the other will happen to you. Don't confuse the words that God says before we made the mistake to God's word that God says to us after we make the mistake. Meaning, the same trader that says, that God says, if you're going to do this, ah, you're going to lose your life. God said those words to us before we made the mistake. After we made the mistake, the trader speaks a lot about God forgiving us. There is a lot of forgiveness. It's like you tell your child, if you're going to do this, there's going to be consequence. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not giving a parenting class, nor am I qualified. I'm not saying that if you give a threat, and you'll never, and you should never follow through. Maybe uh, your kids, if they never be, if you're never gonna follow through, they won't take your threat seriously. Let me even say better. I don't even think you should ever threaten your kids. But I'm saying, if there is a parent, and before the kid did something, oh, if you're gonna do this, you're gonna get it. It doesn't always mean that if they take did it, you have to do what you said you're gonna do. It doesn't doesn't have to be that way. You were trying to prevent them from doing something wrong. So you said words of, if you'll do this, there'll be consequence. And you painted a very dark consequence picture. And it never, it never denies, I'm, again, guys, I know there has to be, I have to follow your word. I'm not going into that conversation. I'm just saying that if a parent gives a consequence and then the child actually does it and they tell the child, you know what, really, you deserve the consequence. But. On the other hand, you did so many other good things. I'm going to acknowledge that and I'm going to be forgiving. You know, there's, there's always place for forgiveness. God for sure does that to us. For sure. Look at God. God tells Adam and Chava, for, let's go to the first warning. If you're going to eat from the tree of, uh, from the Eitz Adas Tevera, on the day you'll eat, you'll die. You know what? He didn't die in the day. He, he died 970 years later instead of not dying at all. I'm not minimizing the consequence. But even the first consequence, God already diminished it. And here by the golden calf, we're learning about this, this Zohav. God, Mamish told, we're going to continue learning in the Gemara next week, God wanted to annihilate us. We participated to a certain level in idol. Idol worship is a capital sin. We didn't die then. Some people did die, but most people didn't. In other words, there's, that's what Shoshana was saying, that look at reality, that it was very rare that a Beisden actually executed someone, stoned someone for Hillel Shabbos. Now, that's a, that's a nice answer, but it doesn't fully answer the question because there were times that people for gathering twigs on Shabbos in the Chumash, they were put to death. They gathered twigs. They gathered twigs. They lost their life, stoned to death. Now, yeah, Bela, God said so. I accept what God says. I'm trying to just make sense of it. So I would, I would like to propose the following words. And here are the words. I'll give you a story that Terebbe, that Terebbe said. Uh, not that Terebbe only spoke about this once. This is a theme that no matter how many times you give an answer, there's always room to ask the question again. There's always room for other answers. It's not a question and answer. It's a question that's better than the answer. Nothing wrong for the question to stand. We accept God's will, but we don't always have to understand God's will. But we have a mitzvah to try. So the Rebbe once, from the many times, addressed this Shabbos after the first man landed on the moon. 
which was, I think, in 1969, or someone here that knows history better than me can correct me, or 1967. It was in the 60s. It was a big accomplishment. It was a very proud moment for, for America, because indeed we were the first nation that sent a person onto the moon. And that week, there was then in New York, you know, various radio Torah shows. At that time, a rabbi, J.J. Hecht, a phenomenal firebrand uh, rabbi that we had amongst us, had a once a week stumped a rabbi, and someone asked him this question. This question, it does not, doesn't sound godly, it doesn't sound holy, for like, whether it was Shabbos, he, the guy was learned, he gave an example of the most, what appears to be the most minute violation, for that, for that you deserve death, and Rabbi J.J. Hecht Shoshana gave your answer. He said that in reality it hardly happened, and the Gemara says that if a Beisden killed a person once in 70 years, it was called a murderous Beisden. No, no, it's really, Jewish law, because of so many uh, preconditions in accepting testimony and, and the sinner needed to be forewarned beforehand and many other legalities, it was really very difficult for you to actually carry. That was his approach. And the Rebbe spoke about a Shabbos. And the Rebbe said that being everything is Bashgacha Pratis. And they asked the question right after this great moment where someone, where they landed on the moon. So the Rebbe says that if he would have been asked the question, Fabrengen, you should know that in the later years the Rebbe wouldn't have said that because if someone would not be as great as Rabbi J.J. Hecht, they might have gotten a, a little bit insulted. He was a, it was in the good old years, meaning that people were humbler and he felt it was a privilege that Rebbe spoke about him. Didn't Bachal bother him. Also, the Rebbe spoke like a tzaddik. The Rebbe is a tzaddik. So the way the Rebbe made the Rebbe, you never heard criticism. But the Rebbe was saying that there's a better, better answer. What was the Rebbe's answer? Again, this angle. The Rebbe says that when, when, when an astronaut that's in the rocket ship, and, and look at the accomplishment that Rebbe says, that we actually figured out with human in, intelligence and thousands of years of accumulative knowledge how to put someone in a tin of metal and blast them off here and to land on the moon. It's a big accomplishment. And, and a lot of, a lot of chachma, including mathematics, went into it. And if one, if there would have been a deviation of the direction of the rocket by a mini, 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 mini millimeter, then it, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have fit the moon. It would still be going. It would still be traveling somewhere out there in space. So it says, the Rebbe says, imagine there is an astronaut and he understands that this button affects the direction of the rocket. It's just a button. So imagine if an astronaut will say, listen here, I have a taiva to press this button. And they tell him, no, 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 if you press this button, we're going to die because we're not going to hit the moon. And he says, no, 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 I'm just pressing a button. I'm not hitting anyone. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not even saying a negative word. I'm just touching something little. I'm doing a little movement. In that context, once you understand that it's not a button with nothing underneath it, that this button is connected to that button, and that button is connected to this, and this is connected to that, and that's connected to the direction, and 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 everything you do is take gonna affect your success in the mission or not. If you if you if you see the button in that context, then everyone will self-understand that pressing the button isn't a minute action. No, pressing the button is take the end of the world. You ruined the mission. Pressing the button is causing everyone to die. In other words, what the Rebbe was saying is that we, 
have a very limited perception of what's really going on. We only see the physical world, which is, which is awesome. And there's a lot of causes and effects. Like if you make a fire and you put your hand in your fire, you're going to get burnt. That's something that we know. We know it almost intuitively. We know. But we only know cause and effect begashmias. We have, most of us, have very little experience of how the physical world is very much so interconnected to a spiritual world. And indeed, everything we do here has a spiritual effect. So the Rebbe said the opposite. Look at the Torah and go to reverse engineering. These are just my words. Any violation of the Torah for which there is no capital punishment, that in itself is indicative of that even though we may never violate God's will, but it doesn't mess up the mission. The fact that for certain sins, God says there's a capital punishment, that is just an insight that even though on the physical realm, it does not look like something so severe, and it doesn't. Like I give an example, you gather twigs on Shabbos. That's the story in the Chumash. Okay, well, what did you do? But when we gather twigs, when we blow in the air, this has a Ruch Nizdik effect. And the effect of doing that on Shabbos, Mamish destroys the worlds. And ultimately, it doesn't only destroy the spiritual worlds, it destroys the physical worlds. Or using now in a muscle, you see now from this horrible virus. You know, a person says, a person who has the virus, and they go into a room with other people, and they only breathe. And they only breathe there. They did nothing. No, if you know what's really happening, sometimes you bring that virus into the other environment. Who, If this happened, God forbid, that someone brought this virus out there. Yeah, so that guy killed the whole world. He killed who knows how many people and damaged how many people. I mean, I, he can claim I only carried a virus that you can't, it's a billionth of, of, of what the eye can see. Yeah, but if you really know what's happening, quantity is not all that what counts. And that was the Fabrengen of the Rebbe. In other words, use the Torah and its punishments to understand what's really happening. Yeah, by the fact that I'm Chayev Misa means that my keeping Shabbos is that important all in the positive. The Rebbe always flipped it to the positive. It means that when I keep Shabbos, I'm building the whole world. I'm healing the whole world. Right? Shabbos will bring Mashiach. My, there'll be no wars when Mashiach will come. It means, yeah, my, my keeping Shabbos prevents wars from happening. Hello, and, and, okay, that's Aleph. Now I want to I want to add to that. Adding to that is like this: that there's no doubt that if we were to see that, if we were to see what is really happening when we take action, what really happens when we do a mitzvah, God forbid, what's really happening when we do the opposite of a mitzvah, if we would see it, we would never sin. We wouldn't even want to sin. Who amongst us wants to hurt someone? Who amongst us, God forbid, will dream of killing someone? If my taiva means someone else dies, I lose my taiva. And that's the way most human beings are. So the ultimate argument, just to put the whole Talmud in context, and Chan into context, and prayer into context. So let's, let's speak about prayer, then I'll bring it all together. Right? Another, so we spoke about why is there such severe punishment for such what appears to be small actions. A shell of that. Another like bomb question, another question that again, you should ask the question and most of us have these questions and the answer doesn't need to answer it fully and there are many answers. It's not that you got the answer and you're good to go. But the question is, why do we pray? God is good. God is the master of the world. God knows what he's doing. Everything is happening from God. What am I praying? That God should change something that God decided to do. That's, that's so foolish. If God is doing everything for the good, so my prayer is for something bad to happen. 
Why am I praying? Let God do what God is doing. You know, at best, moment of prayer should be a moment when I meditate how everything is good and how I work upon me to accept my reality. Because it's good, because it's from God. But that's not Jewish prayer. It's part of it. It's part of it. But it's not all of it. A lot of Jewish prayer, Chana had no child. What you think, Chana didn't have a child, Hefkevelt. It was an accident. No, it was God's, God's plan that Chana should not have a child. So, you know, what, what, what is she davening? And I think that's the same, it's the same concept. I'm just going to bring it from a different angle. Chana's telling God, that's also the meaning that Chana spoke chutzpedek to God. Chana's t- telling God, you can't have it both ways. Both ways means like this. If God will allow us to see what's really going on, if we were to have God's glasses, if we were to see the world through God's lenses, well then, then we would never, then we would never sin. We would be angels. And also, we would be angels, we would never ask for God to change anything. Because we would actually see how everything exactly the way it is, is mamish perfect. It's not good, it's better than good, it's perfect. It's so perfect that if you add anything to it, you have a perfect painting, don't make it better. Just leave it the way it is. You know, that's why we don't add to the mitzvahs. You're going to make a beautiful painting, be more beautiful, no, you're going to ruin it. In many things in life, adding is subtracting. Eloma, Eloma, no, we do pray. Why do we pray? Because God did not give us His perspective. God gave us our perspective. And in our perspective, things appear to be bad. In our perspective, illness is not good. Lacking parnosa is not good, etc., etc. So we are relating to God from our perspective. And when we relate to God from our perspective, we have the right to tell God, yeah, God, I know that you're good, but this doesn't feel good to me. So you got to figure out how to do something else that it will feel good to me. Because you're good. You got to be good not only for you, you got to be good for me as well. And this also explains that when all of the tzaddikim are defending the Jewish people from sin, which is Moshe Rabbeinu, the the Gemara puts it together because it's the same Nekuda. Moshe Rabbeinu was telling God, what's the ultimate defense for our sin? The ultimate defense is we have a Yetzir Hara. Having a Yetzir Hara means that we don't see the reality through God's perspective. Yetzir Hara doesn't only mean that I have a little taiva to do X, Y, or Z. That's a, that's a result of the Yetzir Hara. The ultimate Yetzir Hara, the soul of the Yetzir Hara, is that God is concealed. That's the Yetzir Hara. When God is revealed, then I see what's really happening. When I see the reality, I'm inspired to do mitzvahs, and I am repulsed from doing sin, and I will never make a mistake. Why did we sin? We sinned because there is concealment. Concealment, like we're learning, is too much wealth. There is something that does not allow us to see reality the way God sees it. So from our perspective, we're telling God, you got to cut us some slack. It's like, I'm praying for you to change it. You got to understand my perspective. And the beauty of God is, and that's also the concept of tshuva, tshuva doesn't mean that one side dominates the other. Tshuva doesn't mean that godly soul wins and we lose. No, that's not tshuva. Tshuva means that there's a reconciliation, that there's, a, there's an alignment. And for there to be an alignment, or when the Gemara says that God gave in to the words of Moses, or God gave in to the words of Chana, God gave in to the words of Elio, we learned that last week. It means they spoke chutzpahdik and God gave in. That's very important. Because in order for, for, for there to be a merging of both perspectives, there has to be a two-way acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge that there's a greater reality going on that we don't see. And we acknowledge that. Means even in, even though we also pray for there to be change, but we all know our truth that after the fact, 
We daven before something happened. Once it happened already, we accept it. Not something bad happened. Then we say, it must have been good. Let me ask now that God should pick up my eyes, that I should see the good. So there is the, we are working on ourselves to see the world through God's lens. And this Gemara is telling us these strong words that when a tzaddik is demanding of God, God, you have to see reality through our perspective. And God listened to it. God also, at times, looks at reality through our perspective. And when God does that, then, 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 there is, then the miracle happens. Because the moment God sees our perspective, in our perspective, illness is bad. In Hannah's perspective, not having a child was bad. God doesn't want that to happen. So the moment God gave in to her, that means that God lowered himself. God opened himself up of seeing reality through his creatures, through the tzaddikim, because they deserve it, and in their merit, we all deserve it. Then Taka, something changed. Hannah had a child. Hannah having a child and God forgiving us by Moses is the same thing. Because Taka, from our perspective, yeah, I, I broke Shabbos. I didn't know what Shabbos is. What do you expect of me? In my mind, I just opened up the light. I just took the car. I didn't hurt anyone. And that's my perspective. And Taka, when the moment God sees our perspective, then there's Slichan, there's Mechila, and there's children, and there's health, and there's all the good things in the world. And I think that's what the Gemara is really trying to say, that, that it goes without saying, that we are obligated to make an effort to see the world through God's eyes, but we should not think that God, so to say, does not have the humility or the love towards us that He ignores our perspective. No, because of Hashem's love to us, God is opening to hearing our perspective and we express our, our, our perspective when we pray. That's the shot of praying for the future. God, this, to me this is bad. Help me out. And God listens to that. And God now looks at that through my perspective. And if it's bad, God is the Almighty. God can make it good. God can make it good without ruining his master, his master plan, which is mamash amazing. So God figures out how to get his will done and how to get our perspective also content and, and, and healthy and well. This is the concept. Any comments?